As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome once again to another episode where I'm in conversation with someone I consider a teacher. Well, both my teachers, actually. I, I am indebted to these women I'm speaking to today, um, Professor Joy James and my co-host Khadija. How is everything going today? It's a good day. It's been a good and busy day. <laughs> I would love that. I love that. We're going to go straight in. We're talking. I mean, actually, we're actually honoured to be featured amongst many other activists and learners and scholars in Professor James's book. And I want to kind of just about, I guess, first question, ask him, context of the book, why did you, why this book and why now, Professor James? Okay, so it's really not my book. It's our collective book, but I couldn't convince the press to put okay, your names yeah. on any of the covers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like that's my declaration of intent, right? Mm-hmm. And I kind of understand, you know, why they said no. I mean, it's a it's a collection of ten podcasts discussions. I wouldn't even call them interviews. I mean, sometimes they were a bit grilling, but I understand the reason or reasons for that, right? That we had a collective endeavor or multiple endeavors to clarify contemporary politics and also what our emotional and our political needs are in these moments of crises that just keep rolling. That for me is what makes the book powerful. I mean, it's divided into three sections. In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love is subtitled Precarity, Power, and Community. And the first part is mostly essays that I'd written in the past critiques of abolition, critiques of feminism, the intersections or the convergence of the two, of course, critiques of capitalism and imperialism and the betrayals of U.S. democracy. But the last two I've been told, including by Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is now waiting for an evidentiary hearing after 40-some years incarcerated, based on a trial and a district attorney that everyone agrees that both functioned in corrupt ways. He wrote the afterword, and I have a whole story about how we managed to get that out of prison because the, you know, the administration over, you know, capture prohibits speech and communications, you know, flowing both directions. But he notes that the book really takes off when you all and your colleagues, comrades, I'm not sure what C words to use today, but your collectives start talking that's when the book starts singing thank you so much for that that was a a beautiful kind of laying out of our book i'm gonna say now i have i'm a co-author or Mm co-contributor to a book now with dr joy james so i'm gonna claim that loud and proud and thinking about i guess specifically our section then i know it came at a time where i'm actually gonna give the the alley-oop to khadija to speak about why do we have that conversation khadija thinking about the black feminism what was going on what were we talking about so I I think I was going through a real sort of crisis with my feminism in particular and it was at a time where there was a real need to consider the way radical politics had been subsumed by various state agents and by various state actors and it was kind of from the fallout of something I tweeted I remember specifically criticizing the public discourse around celebrating in the context of Britain, the state wanting to remove passports or seize passports from fathers who weren't paying child support. So my initial response to this was looking at the wider context of how the British state has been operating through citizenship. When we think about the Windrush scandal, when we think about the ongoing precarity of refugees, the ongoing precarity of people who do not have British citizenship but live and work in Britain. This move by the state for me was not one of retribution for the kind of 
ignorance or the lack of care that men were doing as it relates to the sort of family and as to relates to child rearing, but rather another means for this very kind of proto-fascist state that we've had for 12 years to expand its its power, expand its ability to make more precarious people who are already precarious on the basis of non-fixed citizenship and on the basis of, of non-whiteness too, right? Because we're not, they're not going to be, you know, chasing after English men who, who aren't paying their child support or Welsh men who aren't paying their child support and, and taking away their passports. And even if they did, it wouldn't render them as precarious as it would, for example, an African migrant or an Asian migrant or an Asian first generation citizen, for example. And so I, I, I kind of, you know, critiqued that and I said, come on, this is not a good idea. And I faced a lot of backlash. And I remember getting the most bizarre sort of tweets when people saying, oh, you don't know anything about feminism. You've never heard of intersectionality just just throwing all these things at me and I was like what what, where is this coming from you know people who align with a feminist politics of which I thought you know was the birth of my politics were somehow unable to see the way that a reactionary politic was being mobilized and was being obscured through a politics of kind of gendered labor and gendered care and that's that's kind of what what brought me to kind of asking asking Joy Joy James about what exactly her position on on kind of how feminism is being responded to and articulated right now and and I think that's why it was a bit of a grilling because I was desperately trying to make sense of the world that I was in and make sense of this politic which really birthed me, which nurtured me, which brought me to my radicality, all of a sudden being used as a weapon of the state and being wielded by those who should be comrades and those who I thought should understand better. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was done. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate it. And it's not a grilling, you know, even if I was trying to make jokes earlier before we went live, it was a necessary intervention and also because you ask those questions, you know, they they radiate throughout the U.S. and not just the United States, but the Americas. So I'm going to, I could be wrong about this, but I'm going to assert that the U.S. remains an imperial force, not just in terms of AFRICOM and drone strikes and CIA, you know, black ops sites around the world and so on and so forth and militarism and the hiring of mercenaries in various forms and fashion, right? But in terms of its ability to market and sell progressivism, including multiculturalism, I I should not say intersectionality or I'll get hate mail, but the way to promote a certain type of thinking about feminism that is compatible with capitalism. That is the U.S., if they were my student, A plus on anything they put their imprint on. Because it's a co-optation and it's selling it back to the originators of the concept. I mean, I can list a number of prominent Black women who would probably identify as feminists. And we've talked about this a couple of platforms in the U.S. on a podcast called Guerrilla Intellectual University, GIUs, right? That airs Monday at 8 am and my best times being on there is when i'm talking to black women former black panthers black women who are anti-imperialists felicia denat will be speaking this coming monday and they're also one of the collective authors right of in pursuit of revolutionary love so this is the way i see it in the u.s the ambassador to the u.n is a black woman based on what rosemary mealy and others have told me when it came up, you know, as a vote about whether or not to support Cuba's autonomy and freedom from being, you know, ensnared in U.S. predatory foreign policy, that means to end the embargo, like that's a short way of saying it. It was this Black woman who kind of steered some kind of faux ethical statement that the U.S. has to protect itself from Cuba and protect the world from Cuba. And so this embargo that limits medicine and care for children and elderly and people of all ages, this predatory embargo of one of the few nations that had a successful revolution doesn't mean it's perfect, but was able to push out dictatorship and capitalism, that this embargo continues. The vice president of the United States is Kamala Harris. 
uh, when they wanted to send someone to the southern border to justify with some, again, type of faux ethics about why people should be caged in these ICE camps, immigration custom enforcement camps, in which people are abused, they're raped. Don Wooten, African-American nurse, we're having an event next week with her, and she's the one who exposed the womb collector, the forced hysterectomies on the bodies of girls and women, reproductive girls and women, in order to, you know, do some kind of eugenics project, which the U.S. won't call eugenics, right? But Don Wooten has to go underground and go into hiding and can't get a job because she was a whistleblower as a Black mother, as well as a Black feminist. So the sure way to say this, there are Black women who work for him, and there are Black women who want to be capitalists, and there are Black women who don't have a problem being imperialist. Condoleezza Rice comes to mind. Absolutely. That is not a feminism that you can embrace. So if you want to start differentiating between the feminism that protects Black women, Black LGBTQ, Black males, hello, like some people have sons or family members or friends. Some of us have trans sons, right? So if you want a holistic, healthy feminism, you have to start differentiating between the feminism that is used by imperialism and the feminism that fights it. And this is a very pertinent point in thinking about what's happening like today with Ilhan Omar. And people are framing this as there's an expulsion or she's facing these attacks from the right because of she's a woman of colour. And AOC gave a, a very theatrical speech yesterday in Congress. And someone put out online today that, a- that Ilhan Omar is in the tradition of Paul Robeson and Muhammad Ali and other young black anti-imperialist critiques. But this is the same Ilhan Omar who just last week was congratulating and celebrating her meeting with the commander of AFRICOM. So I guess for me, I just I really struggle because, you know, I would say viscerally, you know, I have a black mum. I see a black woman getting attacked. and I'm thinking I want to go stand up for her defense, of course. But simultaneously, I'm like, this is someone who all too often is in alignment with millions of black, uh, sorry, against millions of black women on the continent. So I guess I put it to you, Joy, Joy James, like what advice, how do we think about these things? Well, I mean, look, the, the people who act as your opposition are your opposition. I mean, sorry if it gets emotional. I get yeah. emotional. It's like, oh, my God, not a black woman. Like get somebody else to say that, you know, go on camera and meet with, you know, literally the U.S. military functions with mercenaries. I mean, that's how you control the zone of violence. I mean, this is why I'm going back to Cuba for a minute. This is why they had that revolution, right? And they were triumphal in 59. But their problem wasn't just the U.S. It was organized crime. Because the U.S. allowed the mobsters, you know, who were based maybe in Chicago and other places to run their prostitution rings, their drug trafficking. And I actually think drugs should be decriminalized so the state can stop its predatory capture. But... These corporations, both legal and illegal, run this democracy. The funders run it. And the militarists and the local police, Tyree Jacobs, right? doesn't matter. Those were all black cops. Well, there aren't because now the white cops are starting to lose their jobs, right? For, you know, what they were, it took more days for them to admit that they helped to beat him to death or they were supposed to be supervising. So like some people are going through the same thing around race that we're talking about in terms of gender in the U.S., like, oh, my gosh, there were five black cops who beat this 29-year-old to death and gave him scores of conflicting commands. And even like, man, even somebody runs from you, you don't get to shoot him in the back. You don't get to beat them to death on the street, except you do in the United States and other sectors of the world. So that you see a black predator, male predator, that does not make them less predatory because they're black or African. If you see a black female predator or a black trans or black lesbian predator, that means working for the state and empire and upholding its dominance inflicted through violence. You don't, it's, it's, we're way past time to get emotional about this. I mean, you can be angry, but you cannot be loyal 
because the function, the origin story of Black feminism was about liberation. It was not supposed to be about capture and domination. Thank you so much for that fantastic response, Dr. Joy James. Just on the theme of the assassination of of Tyree Nichols through brutal beating by Black police officers. There's something that I've been thinking about for quite some time and something I wanted to ask you. And it's also something we've discussed on this podcast with a really amazing and wonderful friend and comrade of ours, um, Two Black, who wrote this fantastic article on the laundering of Black rage, which if you haven't seen, I, I want to send you to read because it is truly, truly amazing work. He discusses specifically in the George Floyd case, the way that emotionality that you speak of, the way that rage and sometimes that righteous rage that comes about when we see the extrajudicial murders of Black people was so, was so well captured, so well laundered into meaningless, liberal, symbolic statements. And in the sort of advent of Tyree Nichols's murder, I was thinking again, we saw the same sort of patterns of outrage and anger and righteous anger coming from all forms of public discourse. But the question then becomes, how do we make sure that it doesn't happen in the same way that George Floyd's murder was captured and was laundered and the rage that was felt at the time of the 2020 uprisings where we saw the youth especially taking a leadership role in speaking out and in protesting and in you know defending themselves from the state in a very visceral way how do we prevent this laundering of black rage how do we prevent this capture of black rage yeah so first you cannot prevent it and I know too black and I um They're also in the volume, In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love. They're Black Mist podcasts. We cannot prevent our antagonists from acting against us. And they have practiced for decades on how to siphon off the energy of our rebellion so that they do not look like rebellions, they look like wakes. But wakes in which demands are not made other than demands about another law which you can't enforce if you can't control the courts or the police. And the Supreme Court is the most reactionary Supreme Court probably we've had, I don't know, since mid 20th century or something like that. So if the law does not work for you, I mean, technically it's supposed to. And so what does justice for Tyree Nichols look like? It looks like another administrative legal intervention that is supposed to pacify you. Like in New York City, the Eric Garner chokehold law was passed a number of years after his death. He was choked to death by the NYPD on Staten Island streets in 2014. And 2014 is when Michael Brown was shot by a white cop, Darren Wilson, and his body was left in the streets in Ferguson for four hours. And 2014 is when Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old who was sitting at Pavilion, outside a recreation center for youths and was playing with some plastic device or plastic toy, maybe a toy gun before, but quietly sitting there when a police car races up on the lawn and he's shot within four seconds, the 12-year-old, by Timothy Loman. And his mother, Samaria Rice, to this day, continues to critique. But I think this takes us back to your original question. And I'm going to you know, because I've worked a bit with Samaria Rice and we're doing a forum on February 8th at Williams College with Samaria Rice, Don Wooten and others, right? Samaria's politics are not liberal and they don't conform to the state's demand that we be civil and petition it, almost like, you know, in, in its godlike powers, Right that we don't offend the sensibilities of white liberals and black liberals or black petty bourgeois bourgeoisie who have money or jobs or work in the government, work in the academy. I mean, I appreciate Samaria because she is candid. A murder is a murder. And this is what we talk about in iPearl from, you know, work with Brazilian mothers who've lost their children through police violence. If you want to be godlike, then when you kill a child, you resurrect one. And if you can't wreck, if you can't resurrect the child you killed through your state forces, then why are we even listening to you? There's nothing you can promise or put on the table that actually addresses the crime committed. And I'm not sure emotionally 
psychologically. I'm starting to, after listening to different talks um, by Selma Terefe and Frank Wilderson, I'm starting to think more about our psychological, emotional makeup. I'm not sure that we want to disengage our faith from the state. I think our desire to belong, like we want to belong with the Black Feminist Collective, and then they always start pointing to the door because we're not saying the right words or we're offering critiques of their icons or the way in which they seem, you know, compatible with liberalism and job security. And I believe everybody should have job security, but I mean, if you have to sell too much of yourself, you, you know, you have to evaluate how much it's worth. But it's the rebels that I pay attention to. And I don't always agree with them. And I don't always agree with the impacted families. They're grieving. And they were not necessarily politicized before the tragedy. But then they become elevated by the state and the media to be spokespersons as if they were political analysts or political organizers for years. What happens when you lose a child or a family member or a kin to a state murder is probably different from when you lose someone to a civilian murder because the state you pay taxes to to protect you. And so the irony slaps you in the face with dishonor. I am paying you to protect my family, and now you just killed a beloved family member. And now I have to grieve in an acceptable way that doesn't offend you. And then you're going to offer me some bill named after my child, and there will be another child murdered within, and then put in the months, weeks, days, or whatever until the next killing. So what would our interventions be? I would say, one, prepare ourselves to think as maroons, however you want to define it. I, I don't have a text on this one. But that we have autonomy from the state, and the more autonomy we can get, given the trajectory of the state, the concentration of capital, the resurgence of neo-Nazis, right, the reactionaries being elected to the House, to Congress, and we'll be attempting to take back the White House and the liberals who, who work with them, you know, going back to the sister, at least she's Somalian, it doesn't matter. These are corridors of capture and power. And people want to be close to power, maybe because they think they will be safe. And I'm saying we should rethink that thought and consider how we can build our own defenses, intellectually, emotionally, security-wise, employment-wise, housing education, and increase our autonomy so that when we organize and deliver a political act, it is not mimicry of the script that the state wrote for us. That was such an incredibly powerful uh, response to that question. And it's one that I've been thinking about quite, quite significantly alongside Mamadou, as we're both engaged within academia, thinking about our fugitivity and thinking about how we build outside of what the state offers us and increasing our autonomy because reliance on the state also attaches us to the state, also conscripts us as, as agents of the state. And that's something I, I, I no longer want to be as much as possible. And building building a community of resources, building a community of thinkers, building that that real kind of autonomy that isn't just symbolic, that isn't just art pieces um, that isn't just something that can be captured by by the state and captured by capitalism, I think is imperative, especially right now, because we don't want to keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. We can't keep mourning in the same way and expecting different results. I think the time for over emotionality and reactionary emotionality over the state's actions is, is, is past because the state does this, as you say, if not every week, every month, if not every month, every year. And if you go back to what you said, what Mamadou said about the co- the African continent and AFRICOM, I mean, the state does this globally, and it's not just the death, it's also the dishonor. What is the meaning of the murder of your dead child? That's intensely private, but when it becomes a public spectacle, the meaning is shaped by mass media, and that's the second death. Now, I haven't had child, but I've had not my kids, but, you know, people I raised, you know, murdered on the street. And it wasn't the state. It was, you know, rival underground economy. But it hits the papers. 
And so the condolences are like, you know, people don't even know you. So, but they're offering you condolences or whatever. But there's a way in which your grief and loss gets wrapped into just a national discourse. And the national discourse is one of pacification. And please remember that the police commissioner in Memphis, where Tyree was beaten to death, is a Black woman. So is the police commissioner in New York City. It's a Black woman. And so you're going to end up struggling against people who look like you and that you would want to have brunch with or, you know, go to a movie with or have a sisterhood collected with, that's no longer possible because of um, the state splintering by allowing access to some. I mean, I, I, I throw this one out. I kind of, I, it baffles me, but then I start laughing because it's like, okay, we have a worthy adversary. So a month or two ago, the CIA Central Intelligence Agency, which during the Cold War was sparking a number of genocides, that's the nicest way I can say it, coups and dictatorships. The person who runs it, his name escapes me, it's a white man, gentleman. Uh, He's in his quad and he's unveiling this statue. And it's like, we have this statue in our quad. This is the first spy. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Who's the first spy that now represents them? It's Harriet Tubman. I remember that, yes. I mean, no, but it's... I feel in part like I'm laughing because I laugh when I get angry because it's like you spat in my face. I wouldn't like if you want to get a Confederate white spy, I would totally understand that because that's in alignment with your mission. But you take a black woman who had been beaten and enslaved and risked their lives. And then, you know, you have them, I assume I have to look at the statue again, like with their rifle or the gun, whatever. And it's like, they work for us. That's when, like, there are no limits. This is what I'm trying to say. Now I know what I'm saying. There is no limits to the appropriation of Black radical culture and freedom struggles. It's siphoned off, it's reconfigured, and then it is sold back to us. So we can't stop the theft but we don't have to ingest the simulacra or the poison that they're selling that says every Black noble, every Black courageous, every Black intellectual, every Black radical artist is an extension of the state. That is essentially where this is going. Again, it's it's so hard to follow after you speak because it is so... There is so much depth to what you say. But that's collective. I mean, we're just, you, you, you can stop saying that, okay? <laughs> it's collective. It is our, our conversation. Our conversations allow our thoughts to unfold. And so they're not personal thoughts. They're collective thoughts that are sparked by the desires and the needs that we share. And for me, that's what I Pearl, the book was about. That's why I even like the book, because if I'm just talking to myself by myself, I I can get really muddled and lost. But when I'm talking to you and Mama do, I'm like, okay, pay attention to me. I'm saying that to myself. <laughs> no, that's that's really, really wonderful to hear. I have a question that's a little bit of a tough question for me to ask, because I've faced quite a lot of backlash for engaging in this material. Like I said, I was going on this long journey, kind of re- trying to rediscover my feminism. And, you know, I eventually got to the place where I did. I, I, I realized and I recognized that I didn't have to discard with the feminists that made me me. I didn't have to discard of Bell Hooks, Patricia Hill Collins. I didn't have to discard of Claudia Jones, any of these women who are so central to, to my conception of self and so central to my radicality. So I spent sort of a while and I actually got to visit, like, see a, a lecture by Thomas J. Curry. And I went in there kind of angry, you know, <laughs> I went in there angry, ready to fight, because to me, this was a man who was all the things that were wrong with any sort of studies about masculinity. And in this sort of lecture that I went to, towards the end, I was like, oh, this has actually given me questions to think about as it relates to my feminism, the types of feminists that I want to align with and who I want to be. And most significantly, I think I've started to think about the role of black men in my politics and how for a long time I was part of the reactionary band of of feminists who basically just excommunicated black men from any of my politics, right? Viewed them as 
sitting in that location of contradiction, but overwhelmingly wielding a sort of power over me. And then I started to think about the reality of, of and the materiality of the lives of black men. I've got a young brother who is 15 year old, 15 years old now. But when he was 13, just a few months after my dad died, so a few months after he lost his father figure, while standing outside of my mom's apartment, he was attacked by a group of boys, beaten up quite badly. And he came home to his mother and his three sisters, quite confused, quite disturbed, and also just didn't want to talk. And then more recently, as he was walking home from school, he told us how, you know, an unmarked car pulled up onto the sidewalk and out came a group of armed police. He was terrified. He didn't know what to do. And he genuinely thought he was going to die that day. And that really made me think of, okay, how am I thinking through my politics about black men? How am I, and how have I been for a long time, associated them with so much negativity, with so much admittedly hate, when here I am looking at a young boy who is being treated like a black man, who is coming very very closely to losing his life, one from kind of intercommunal issues, but also from the state. And how do I recognize that? How do I recognize that vulnerability? How do I recognize the terror that they face in a manner that is challenging to the types of you know ways that especially liberal feminism has now began to talk about black men? And I just wanted to ask, like, what do we do about the black <laughs> man subject? What do we do about that? How do we recognize their visibility and their particularities of their experience and not disregard them in our feminism, especially as that's become so popular now and so many popular feminists have this constant attitude of these are the worst actors. And some of the things I've seen online have been devastating. No, I really appreciate that one because you lead with your heart. I mean, I think this is why I started talking and writing about the captive maternal mostly in 2016, right? And also having worked with neurodiverse teens and children like across different sectors in different states, those who are neurodiverse are more likely to self-identify as trans or non-binary. And wow, I think, I think the, the violence arrayed against us is stunning. I think to gender it is part of an analytic that if you don't move through the different layers of developing that analytic, you have the minotaur's maze. You're just sort of stuck moving from corridor to corridor or going across various corners, but you don't arrive at any destination that looks like liberation. In part, the people who control us in the domestic sphere, in the social realm, in families, one could think of, you know, a patriarchal order. I'm not saying they don't exist. Like, who is the father figure? Who's the uncle, the grandfather, the eldest brother, you know, the mothers who cater to their male children more so than their female children and their mothers who do differently, right? But that is not the only source of violence in our lives. And for people who have relationships with males who love and protect them, and also who sometimes lose their lives when they're protecting us. I mean, there a lot of stuff goes on in New York City. A young black woman was harassed by a group of young black males, I'm presuming, on the set, and she told her male partner. And he went down to say, look, you can't bother her. And they shot him and killed him on the spot. So you can't have a one-way story that a whole category of people with whatever kind of chromosomes, right? That this constitutes a hostile, inherently hostile force against all black women and all black girls. That's not, that's not even real. I mean, I don't know what happened to you personally in your own lives. And I could say, and I've said before on other platforms, definitely inside the book, you know, if I grew up with a military intelligence officer, then I'm familiar with how violence rolls. But I also grew up, and that was somebody from the middle class, but I also grew up with someone who grew up sharecropping. And there's violence in in cotton fields too. So I couldn't abide by conventional Black feminism. I just might as well alienate everybody who's going to listen to this because I just found it simplistic. The original stuff, Tony K. Bambara, the, the work, the origin, some of it was brilliant. 
Claudia Jones, 1949 public affairs article about the Negro woman, some of it was brilliant. But over the years, I feel it, it, it got very simplistic and emerged in some ways with white feminist narratives and in ways in which it's redirected back into empire. And I've said before in my research and also like in public things, Gloria Steinem, who launched People and Ms., Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Michelle Wallace, Angela Davis, they all published in Ms. Magazine. Steinem worked for the CIA. I mean, I'm assuming she does anymore, you know, because she's like in her 80s, whatever. But this steering of like, you can isolate a gender from a people and still have a people doesn't make sense. We are people and we were enslaved because we were identified as being subhuman. And our humanity is shaped by notions of gender, but it wasn't determined by it. You get imperialism and capitalism, you get the devastation of violence in the household, you get rapes, and then you have to remember, males, both boys and adult males, are raped also, but nobody talks about it. And there have already been reports the UN is under reporting rape and wars, not in terms of rapes of women and girls, but rapes against boys and men. We're all vulnerable to violence. I'll give you a short narrative that I heard from a former Panther. And this is, this is the East Coast Panthers. You know, Huey Newton sent death squads from Oakland to take care of the New, New York or New, East Coast Panthers were more likely to be, um, they were revolutionaries. They weren't going to be bought by the state or, you know, go into like some nonprofit thing, right? And they'd already understood the meaning of COINTELPRO when the FBI can assassinate um, Panthers with local police. So I'm listening to this podcast and someone who's now an elder says that when they were captured as a teenager and they went to prison, they were very concerned about rape inside a prison. And it wasn't just because there were individuals who acted out in predatory ways. It was because the prison bureaucrats would sanction or agree to a certain amount of violence to break the incarcerated, particularly if they were militants, if they were Black militants. So the Panther crew, who all got arrested at the same time, if I recall the story correctly, and this is going to be violence, so deal with the trigger warnings. Their position was, if you, anybody who rapes is done. And I read done as you no longer exist, meaning you expired, meaning somebody took you out. And they said every zone in the prison that they controlled, all the rapes ended. And so when I think of the captive maternal, I think of care as the primary function that moves beyond protest movement into rebellion, which is what the Panthers do and did. And there were some, Eldridge Cleaver was a rapist. I would say Huey Newton was one too. Nobody talks about it. There's contradictions inside these movements. But my point is, as a people, we would have to reconcile with our distrust, right, for each other, not just around gender, but also around class. And as a people, we would have to build a security apparatus. And that means that this rhetoric, which gets polarizing from the masculinists who may want some form of patriarchy and think that Black women are crippling them or holding them back or have some power over them, and all the power that I see that Black women have, it's because they work for the bank or they work for the state. I don't know. And that included Oprah, right? That was a corporation. I don't know any Black woman who has autonomous power unless she's a radical. So this is not a clear line of response to what you're asking, but I can be clear, uh, clear about this. I don't buy this war between genders among a captive Black people. If Tyree can be killed like that in the streets, if 12-year-old Tamir can be killed like that sitting at a pavilion, if Sandra Bland can be found hanging in her cell, if you could be in an ice camp and be from Haiti or Cameroon and suddenly lose your uterus because somebody butchered you in an unforced medical procedure, that tells you about shared vulnerability. And if we have shared vulnerability, remember the police also 
murder elderly black women, Eleanor Bumpers, Deborah Danner, some neurodiverse, some because advanced age, they have dementia, totally unnecessary to shoot them multiple times. They still do it. We share the precarity. Males become the most visible targets, but we share the precarity. Do we have the capacity to scale down the violence raid against ourselves in our communities? As you said, your brother is first beaten by people who are in the neighborhood. That would take a certain level of courage, and it would need all genders, including those who are non-binary and agender. So I understand that there's misogyny and there's femicide. There's also filicide the killing of children, and there's also genocide. I would never just stop with femicide and say that that explains violence. It does not. You have to deal with violence arrayed against everyone in the communities and by extension against our environment. The water, the land, the murders of land and water protectors, it's over a thousand people have been murdered for trying to keep water and land pristine. I understand violence against women because I've lived through it. I do not understand a fossil feminism that thinks it can isolate that violence and identify only one perpetrator. Thank you so much for that powerful response. And, you know, your answer is that made me feel incredibly validated because I think this is exactly where I'm at. And as much as people have responded negatively to Professor Curry's work, I think the the fact of him highlighting the sexual violence that young black boys experience, the fact of him making that his life's work and the way that even in his text, the man not, He's specific about who he critiques, right? So he critiques Michelle Wallace. He critiques Patricia Hill Collins to an extent and Bell Hooks to an extent, specifically looking at their citational practice, looking at how they're citing people like Dworking and McKinnon, who, as we know, had a particular white feminist agenda. And, you know, people like Crenshaw, who also tended to cite these white feminists and use them as the formulation of their thought. And he offers an analysis that basically articulates that Instead of looking at violence as a gendered entity, we need to look at the social factors. We need to look at the material factors that increase violence because that's actually where we get to the answer. But because of the focus on the black male subject, I feel like it's come under a lot of negative scrutiny. But like I've... But, sorry, could you... But one thing that came to mind, sorry if I'm over jumping no, you. Go um, ahead. I want to be clear though, because I hear other things too from young people, like grad students, right? Or community-based intellectuals, Black feminists who don't follow these citations of liberalism. All of the, you know, the white feminists he's talking about are are liberals, right? Mm. And there's a way in which Hooks was a liberal. I remember I worked on the Central Park case and Hooks and a number of other Black prominent feminists came out and said they were guilty. And I was like, how could you know that? And Oh, you're reading the New York Times, which is quoting the NYPD. And we know those five youths were innocent, but I only knew because I was organizing on the ground and I go to Harlem and I have to meet people who are black internationalists. And then they introduce me to people. And then I end up talking to one of the mothers. And then I end up with, you know, my all women's dojo going to the trial and and watching. And Yusef's the only one to testify in his defense because everybody else is beaten down or they have bad legal advice. Unless you have a feminism that's on the ground and is organizing the community, I would not trust it. Yeah. I don't care if they were all of their citations were from black liberal women. That wouldn't make it a stronger analysis because it is an abstraction on the material struggle. Unless you're actually in that material struggle, you're engineering a world that does not really exist the way in which you're describing it. But having said that, I know that there's some people who support Curry's work or reportedly support Curry's work or are in line with Curry in which, you know, their Twitter battles with grad students who are trying to identify the patriarchy and push back against what they see as simplistic constructs. So I see a lot of intimidation going on in the states and granted people want to intimidate me too but you know 
I'm just sort of not in the game. I don't care that much. Just like literally leave me alone. And you know, and it's sort of, I mean, because academia, you know, it pays my bills and it pays for the people I support. And that's why this book is by some small press in UK. And it was there, right there, like, hey, you want to do a book? And I'm like, what, what, what is this? Right? Okay, let's just make it collective. But there is, this is for me, the slippery slope, this, this polarization, and I've started to call it brand. Mm. It's marketing. Exactly. exactly. Like, it's like, stop selling your brand. I would be okay if we weren't being shot in the streets. And in, even, and then I'm told by the younger people, they're using my work to say, this is what the captive maternal means. But then I've also seen black feminists who really dislike <laughs> my work who are using my work. And then I find like my private emails are in Twitter wars. So now I'm not emailing anybody anymore. And I'm always saying nice things to people, but I was like, don't fly me as a banner in your war because I'm only interested in revolutionary struggle. And none of y'all, except for the younger people on the ground would even consider that because that's when you start losing your perks. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that because I actually... (laughs) So on that specific point, I was going to say your name is brought in as people often say, <laughs> well, well, you know, BMS, Black Male Studies is no different to someone what Joy James is saying. No, and I'm, really and, yeah, and I, and I wanted to say very important on this, and this is something I find quite unfortunate and it speaks to what you're saying, what goes on Twitter and branding. I really think the work is quite insightful and quite uh, well-needed research. Yeah. However, I'm going to be totally honest, the way it's used by people, I think is disgusting. And it can be because very it's reactionary. And yes, it's good. used to beat down black women. It is. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I, yeah, I want to jump in on this, right? Because um, usually I'm just sort of laid at back and like, y'all settle it. But <laughs> here's the deal. It's when you get to Rebecca Ann Wilcox chapter mm-hmm. and they're actually asking the question in the book that you're posing now. And then their criticism is like, you're not making it clear. And my position is, I didn't, I didn't know that was my job, right? I thought I was just supposed to be coherent and then people do what they want with it. But now I realize that's a kind of laziness because people are doing some weird stuff. So here's the thing that I say in that chapter. I say, you can't just go to words. If you, if, and this is where we, we fail, not all of us, like, but I would say where I feel. It takes a certain kind of courage to push beyond the market, to say, like, I'm not selling anything anymore. But what I want is a security apparatus, and I want a spiritual discipline, and I want an intellectual endeavor. That means I want to struggle on all metrics for what is holy and what is right. I will not become a commodity and I'm not selling encyclopedias or like real estate or anything like that. I don't sell. And anybody who does sell is not really teaching you anything other than to purchase. So I have been in platforms where people have rolled up and then they start talking to me, but then they ignore the black women who are on either side of me because they're talking about rape or they're talking about self-defense. And I'm like trying to include people into the conversation. And it's really not working. And actually everybody who quotes me, I mean, please, those are some of the same people who attack me. <laughs> they just won't do it in print. But if we're on a panel or they do it behind my back. So I'm just being used as leverage, but I can tell you straight up, everybody has the right to self-defense. And I'm not here to be subjugated, wasn't for as a young woman, middle-aged woman, old woman, elder, whatever you want to call it. I'm here to exist and to work collectively with others for freedom. And this stuff is a distraction. The right wing is growing steadily. The reactionaries are gaining power. Militarism is on steroids. Stop playing intellectual games. If you want a strong people, then reconcile and demand justice and provide protections, but also provide defense mechanisms. Does that make sense? Absolutely. This is this this thing. I mean, some of my students and also millennials are killing capitalism. I think it was 
Josh, I hate to quote him because they keep saying we, we got misquoted in the book. We didn't say that George Jackson was a hyper-masculinist. And I'm like, he probably was. I don't have a problem with that. It's what he does with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so what he did with it was to become a revolutionary. Was it his masculinist stuff? Yes. And I said that in the interview. It's like, it's like, oh my gosh, would you stop already? But here's the deal. People who will die for you are the people who will die for you. People who want to talk about their publications and critiques are not the people who would die in struggle. And I'm not even saying we should die in struggle. I just think we should risk something of our egos in order to make something tangible on the ground to leave as a legacy for young people. And I, I, this is why I find academics to be infuriating. I always feel like, like you feel like you're going somewhere and then there's capture yeah. and there's distraction. And now there's like little pods or little gangs. And I was like, why is this relevant to what the police did in Atlanta when they shot the Peruvian forest protector? Why is it relevant to Tyree being beaten to death in the street? Why is it relevant to all these long prison sentences, right? Why is it relevant to poisoned water in Flint? Like, it's not. It's totally irrelevant. So why do I have to hear about this? Like, Belle was wrong. And I don't think she ever apologized. But I went to a forum in Philly and, you know, I said important, nice things about her. I was on with these other luminary, you know, Black feminists who disagreed with me. But when it was like, what was her legacy? And somebody says, um, what is it? To critique cisgender patriarchy. I'm sorry, I'm messing it up. But I was like, well, maybe her legacy was also pointing us to me. You know, maybe we should think about critiquing and fighting genocide. Because the part when I was saying about Bell Hooks actually going to meet with Thich Nhat Hanh, and her starting to critique capitalism towards the end of her life, that was irrelevant because everybody wanted to talk about how many books she wrote, like 40. And that's cool. But, like you know, if you wrote 40 books, I don't think, you know, that maybe you don't have a lot of time to organize. And maybe that's why you didn't go to any of the rallies around the Central Park Five or go sit in the courts to actually understand what the communities in resistance understand. So I... I'm an academic, but I only hang out with a few of us because, and it doesn't make me better, but I really don't have a brand. The captive maternal is not a brand. It is an extension of my life. And it is also a zone of suffering, but I'm willing to abide in relationships with you, Mamadou, Khadija, until the end of my life. And I think that is a good life. And I think that's what the back of the book says. Like, there's no rescue committee or rescue crew coming for us, but we can deal with the violence and respond to it with integrity. And that will be our good lives. I'm just wary of the time. Ooh, that's, um, a, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful. Yeah, that's, that, that's how we should end it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's right there. I'm not usually lost for words, but thank you so much. And until next time, people, take care.